All right, how's everybody doing? Good. Uh, it's good to be together today. I want to welcome those of you who are new to our church and a uh, uh, special shout out to those of you watching online and from our different locations around the D.C. metro area. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here uh, in our church. And if you weren't here last week or you didn't get a chance to hear uh, David's message or you're not on our uh, email list and, and haven't gotten uh, the update uh, about our um, upcoming church family meeting on September 24th, uh, which is a pretty significant meeting. And this is very awkward for me to talk about because a lot of that meeting has to do with me and, uh, and uh, the uh, potential opportunity that I have to serve this church in a, uh, a new way. And uh, so I want to just encourage you all to attend uh, that meeting virtually on September 24th. And if you want more information uh, about it, you can go to mcclainbible.org slash churchfamilymeeting. McLeanBible.org slash church family meeting. Uh, As David mentioned last week, uh, I've had the privilege of serving this church on staff uh, for 16 years. And then my wife, uh, who is here somewhere, uh, she's been on staff uh, as a a worship director on our staff for 18 uh, years. And uh, when we joined staff, we joined here at the Tyson's location uh, with our uh, young adult ministry formerly known as... Frontline, shout out to all the frontliners here. People don't know. They don't know. We OGs. Um, but uh, so our frontline young adult ministry at the time, uh, we joined st- uh, uh, that staff uh, here in uh, Tyson's. And then we had the opportunity to help in the launch a location in Silver Spring, Maryland. That ended up becoming our Montgomery County location currently. And so it's been a blessing to really, uh, in a very real way, grow up in ministry uh, here in this church. We weren't even married, y'all. Um, when, uh, when we started on staff, and I was taking way too long. Uh, but that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. But it's locked down now, uh, 15 years later. Praise God. Praise God. All right. So uh, it's a joy. And uh, honestly, it's a humble, uh, humbling and um, uh, overwhelming uh, uh, just grace from God that I, uh, to even be considered to serve the church in, in a new way. So... Um, yeah, uh, mcclainbible.org slash church family meeting if you want to get more information. And that meeting will be uh, virtually on uh, uh, September 24th. Now, we're going to dive into to God's word. I want to share just a little bit of my heart for the church and for our church. But one of the things that's at the top of my mind right now is a trip that I went on this week. And it was uh, my first fishing trip ever. Uh, first fly fishing trip. Some of y'all are laughing because you already seen it on my IG. Uh, I tried to get a picture to show you, but it didn't work out because I sent it a tech too late. But that was the grace of God because I don't want to further embarrass myself. But let's just say real fishermen don't wear Nike fanny packs, all right? It's not a fanny pack. It's a sling. It's a sling. I don't wear fanny packs. Um, but uh, I was there with some dudes that really fish for real. And they were like, Mike, come rock with us. You're going to have a great time. We went to Deposit, New York, Delaware River. Never even heard of it. Never been there. It was absolutely beautiful. And we are standing in the middle of a river fishing. Some of you are like, yeah, that's what fly fishing is. I was not aware, right, when I signed up for this. And so we're doing it. And uh, I did not, a lot of people have asked me, uh, did you catch anything? Let me just tell you up top. No. Four days, not a single fish. However, I did walk away with what I call meditations in hopelessness. That's what I call. And it, it, it progresses in stages. It starts with anticipation. You get out there, you're like, yes, this is amazing. I can't wait. Graham, I can't wait. Story, all that stuff. Like, this is going to be awesome, right? Lots of anticipation. 
about the size of the fish. You see the pictures, right? When the people are holding the fish like this and all that. That's what I, I picture myself doing, right? So that's the anticipation. Then anxiety begins to set in. Day two or so, and you're like, hasn't happened. Will it happen? Anxiety. Then realization starts to set in. This is where hopelessness begins to emerge. Like you wish the fish were emerging, hopelessness begins to emerge. And you start to realize, I don't, nothing's going to change. What I anticipated, what I thought was going to happen, I really don't think it's going to happen. And then that settles into despair, right? And that's when you just start faking it because you don't want everybody else to feel bad. You don't want to suck everybody else into your hopelessness. And so you just start going through the motions, not casting a line. I was more so throwing a line. It was getting tangled. There were lots of problems. And I just kept doing it. I didn't want to be out there anymore. I wanted to be back home. I didn't want to be a downer. So I'm just going through the motions so I don't pull everybody else down. And that hopelessness actually ends up affecting everybody else because they end up saying to themselves, we've done everything we can do for him. There's nothing, more, there's nothing more we can do. We've, we've told them every method of casting a line. We've told them, like, there's nothing else we can do, right? I thought about that picture because as we were studying in the Gospel of Mark, we were looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus, one of the descriptions of ministry that Jesus gives to his disciples, he says to them what? He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it's a way of him describing his mission and the fact that he's invited the church to participate in that mission. And he said up top what his mission was. He said, I came to seek and save the lost. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And there are many of us who are in this room and and people watching online who you have been a recipient of that mission, that grace that God has set in motion that actually affected your life, that you and I are sinners who deserve the judgment of God. We don't deserve his goodness. We deserve to be separated from him because we've chosen to live separated from him. And yet God did not give up on us. But in his mercy and his love, he pursued us and continued to pursue us. And he didn't force us to turn from our sin and trust in him. He wooed us with his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his love. He wore us down by just revealing to us over and over and over again how much he loves us and how good he is and how much better his kingdom is. And that grace and that mercy broke through our hard hearts. And we were hooked. Like we became followers of Jesus. We turned from our sins. We became lovers of the lover of our souls, worshipers of God. Amen. Like we've been recipients of that mission. And this is what God wants to do in your life. If you're here, you're watching. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, let me just tell you, you are listening to this message. You are sitting in this room or some room at one of our locations because God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you. And as followers of Jesus, 
God invites us to be a part of, of that mission. And here's, here's, the, here's the analogy, right? Because, because there were all these circumstances that out on the river that I just didn't anticipate that just made it very, very difficult. And hopelessness began to set in. And as the church, we, became, we can begin to feel that same hopelessness as we look out at the difficulties in our culture. So a couple of dynamics. You think about the increasing secularization of American culture. Mark Sayers describes secularization as progress or the attempts to make progress without, pre- progress without presence, trying to make progress in society, but, 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 but extracting the presence of God. G.K. Chesterton talked about it as, as uh, sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. Secularization says, I will take and enjoy all the benefits of the goodness of God, I will plagiarize the goodness of God and not give him credit. That's the project of secularization, to enjoy the benefits and blessings of God in society, but to take God out of the picture. And we see that in our culture, especially in emerging generations. So I was talking to Donnie Cohn about this. He's our director of students and young adults here at our Tyson's location. And he's been working on a research project about uh, spirituality in emerging generations. And he sent me this. He says, right now, half of 50 to 64-year-old Americans, so about 50% of them believe in a God who hears and answers prayers. But only 30% of 18 to 29-year-olds believe that. Like, that's a massive shift in the spiritual climate of our country. Churches are hemorrhaging Young people, a recent study found that among young adults who attended church regularly at some point in high school, only 69% were still attending at age 17, 58% are still attending church at age 18, and it drops to 40% at age 19. Just one to two years out of high school, and there's this massive dropout of kids who grew up in the church. In total, about 35% of Gen Z directly describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or none. No religious affiliation at all. 35% of Gen Z, that's up from 20% of baby boomers. These are massive cultural shifts, increasing secularization, also increasing diversity. Like we've seen the statistics, the landscape, the demographic landscape of America is changing and it's changing at a rapid pace. And listen, that challenges in many ways what we consider or have understood to be American. And it puts pressure on the status quo. And that diversity can be beautiful in some ways, but one of the dynamics that makes that diversity very difficult is this third thing, this, the increasing polarization that we see in our country. And so what we see on on one far extreme is what I'll call a a pseudo-Christian conservatism. That by any means is just trying to conserve this particular version or idea of of how they've kind of experienced America. And then on the far other extreme, you have this kind of anti-Christian progressivism 
And these two extremes actually represent the minority of people in our country. But they also represent the loudest demographics in our country. And so we've seen this over the last several years, that there is this bitter, intense, hostile culture war happening in our country. And then you have the majority of Americans and what researchers call the exhausted majority in the middle that are just kind of tired of all the hostility and all the cancel culture and are trying to pull back from the edge of, of some of the fruit of that hostility that we've seen in our culture. All of these dynamics working together in our culture, and all of that raises a question for me. Here's the question. Does the church stand a chance? Does the church, does the, the vibrancy and mission of the church, does it stand a chance in that kind of environment? And my answer to that would be, well, it depends on how you look at it. It depends on how you look at the church. If the church is just a brand, a religious brand, there's no brand loyalty anymore. If the church is just some kind of vision of how we've done things and bigger buildings and and bigger budgets and more cultural influence, if the church is just something that we do and we produce, the situation is looking bleak. Here's the thing. The church is not primarily about something that we do. The church is primarily about something that God is doing. And so every time I think about the church and every time I'm tempted to hopelessness and despair, I come back to this one verse. It's one of my favorite descriptions of the church in the New Testament. Just one verse. And the Apostle Paul puts it like this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. Listen to what he says. Matter of fact, can we say this out loud together here, watching online at our locations? Can we just read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22 out loud together? Y'all ready? You are not inspiring me with confidence. Y'all ready? All right, let's read this out loud together. Here we go. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. Y'all, this is one of my favorite descriptions of the church. In Him, in Christ, you also are being built together into what? Into a dwelling place for who? For God. How? By the Spirit. Oh, it's one of the most, to me, most, one of the most amazing descriptions of the church in the New Testament. Because when I look at this verse... There's three reasons here for for why I'm excited about the future of gospel ministry, even in this culture. Here's reason number one. Number one, there's a new generation that needs to see the glory of Jesus. There's a new generation that needs to see the glory of Jesus. There's a lot that has clouded in many ways the glory of Jesus. Oh, but I think there's such a fresh opportunity for the church and for our church to show a watching world and a watching, seeking generation that Jesus is better. So I look forward to one day us walking through this letter to the Ephesians, just the entire letter together. But 
But Ephesians 1 and 2 is one of the most sweeping and breathtaking descriptions in all of the New Testament of what God is accomplishing through Jesus. And all of it is loaded into those first two words that we just read in verse 22. In him. In him. That's one of the most important phrases in the entire Bible. Over and over again in this letter and throughout the New Testament, you see that phrase, in him or in Christ Jesus. Let me just show it to you just in one section, just one chapter back, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read this. You can read it on the screen. Uh, but I want you to just see, because once you see it, you can't unsee it. You're going to see it over and over and over again. And this is just a representation of what you see all throughout the New Testament. Look, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes. He's writing here in Ephesians 2, a group of Christians in Ephesus, and he says this, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. How? In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he starts elaborating on those spiritual blessings. Even as he chose us, how? In him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Justification. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Jesus, in the one that he loves. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. In other words, God has been at work all along. There's this plan that's been unfolding all along. How is it unfolding? In Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. What's the plan? To unite all things. Where? In Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in Christ. Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, there's so much we can dive into here. I mean, we could do an entire sermon series just on those verses. But instead of zooming into all the details of those verses. I actually want us to zoom out for a minute to see the overall point Paul is making. If you got lost in all those weeds, go back, study those verses. Every single line in there is so rich. You could double click all of it and go so much deeper. But I want you to catch the, the sweeping, profound reality that Paul is describing. Here is what Paul is describing. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you're a Christian, Something astonishing has happened to you. If you are a Christian, something astonishing has happened to you. What's happened? Here it is. You've been united with Christ. It's a doctrine that theologians call union with Christ. 
Let me try to simplify it for you and just do the best that I can to just define what that means, hopefully in a way that's helpful to you. Here's what it means to be united with Christ. Y'all ready? This is what Paul is saying. Listen, it means that if you're a Christian, your status before God the Father is now based on Jesus' status before God the Father. Y'all, we don't fully understand this because if we did it, it would radically transform the way we live our life. If you are a Christian, your status before God the Father is now based on Jesus' status before God the Father. That is the promise of the gospel. And it's absolutely crazy, but it's the only way that the gospel could work. Because the reality is that you and I could never earn a reputation or identity or acceptance before God. Something has to not only happen for us, but has to happen to us to make us acceptable. And what happens is that we are brought into this covenant relationship with Jesus. We are united with him. And what that means is that God now looks at us and treats us like he looks at and treats His one and only son, Jesus. What this means, listen, what this means is that now Jesus' past changes your past. Because Jesus lived the perfectly righteous life that you and I have failed to live. And he died the death and absorbed the punishment that we deserve. And then he rose from the grave with victory over Satan, sin, and death. That is an objective historical event that has happened in the past. And his past changes your past. Your sin now in Christ is separated as far as the east is from the west. His past changes your past. His present changes your present. Because now that he's been risen from the grave and he's ascended, he's been given the name that is above every name. And Paul says in Colossians that now he is seated at the right hand of God. You know what that means? He is seated in the place of favor. And you know what Paul says in Colossians 3? It says, if you are in Christ, you are seated with him in the heavenly realms. You right now as a son or daughter in Christ, you are seated in a place of irrevocable and eternal favor before Almighty God because Jesus' presence changes your present. And listen, here's the even better news, y'all. Listen, Jesus' future changes your future because Jesus is coming back again. This time, not in humility, he's coming in glory. This time he's coming to make known, unavoidably clear to all of creation in heaven and on earth that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he is reigning and that he is ruling and that he is victorious, that he is glorified. And that future changes your future because you are united with him. And so listen, this changes everything about how you see yourself and you see your life and you live your life. It changes how you experience the joys and sorrows of life in this world. Because we talked about this when we talked about Jesus' resurrection. Because your future means this. It's not just that you get consolation for what you experience in this life. 
No, 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 no. It means that you will get the perfection of what you experience in this life. Every heartbreak, every loss, all pain is ultimately evidence that this world is not the way it was intended to be. And it points us to this reality that God is going to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. When Jesus returns, everything is going to be made right. And everything that brings you joy, every bit of goodness in every brownie, every ribeye, every kale shake, smoothie, Whatever y'all be eating in 2023, <laughs> everything that brings your heart joy and delight will be perfected. God is not, I've said this before, God's not going to be like, oh, you know what, for all your trouble, here's a harp. Eternally, we're just going to be playing the harp. No, 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 no. You are going to listen to how Wayne Grudem says it. Systematic theologian, he says, when we look into the face of our Lord and he looks back at us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had. As we gaze into the face of our Lord, we will know more fully than ever before what David says in Psalm 1611, that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, Jesus' future, it changes your future. And that changes how we live and how we see life today. And listen, here's why that matters. Here's why I say there's a new generation that needs to see the glory of Jesus. Because for those of us who have experienced this, and listen, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you were like me and you were a teenager and you grew up, you're growing up in church and you come to church, but your heart has not been set on fire by the love of God towards you. If you have not yet truly surrendered your life to Jesus, listen, this is what this means for you. Matter of fact, let me illustrate this way. There's a dead zone by my house. I don't know why. I don't know what in the world it is. But every time I go past this one little street, cell signal, it just drops. So my phone is searching. Y'all know what that looks like. It's very, it's not, not 5G, not even 4G, not even LTE. You know what I'm saying? It's not even, it's, it's not even bars. It's when you get the dots. It's extraordinarily frustrating, right? The phone is searching. But it can't actually experience what it was designed to do because it can't find the signal. And what the gospel announces to you and it announced to me is this, that the life you're looking for can only be found in him. Amen. It can only be found in Jesus. And so listen, you might be searching and scanning this world, and there's a whole culture and generation searching and scanning the things of this world to try to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction and security and joy, and we look for it in our careers. And then we're discontent. We look for it in relationships and sexual satisfaction. We look for it in substances. We look for it in the approval of people that we are begging to notice us. And inevitably, we're scanning and we realize we cannot find what it is we're looking for. You get the money and you realize the money doesn't do it. You get the house, you realize the house doesn't do it. You get the relationship and the marriage and you realize as great as this person is, this person cannot fully satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. Listen, 
the life that you are looking for can only be found in Jesus. It can only be found in Jesus. And he says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. You don't have to keep scanning everywhere. It's looking you in the face. He came in the flesh and he said, I've done this for you. And this is the message that we get to carry to a new generation. There are 3.2 billion people who do not have access to the gospel in nations, ethnic communities all over the world. And we as a church are committed to do our part in getting the gospel there. But there are also almost 7 million people here in the DMV area. And you may never talk to a person in Nepal, but you can talk to a person in your neighborhood. You can put on display through your life the fact that life is ultimately found in Jesus. You have the opportunity as a student to say to your friends, you've been made in the image of God. You have inherent dignity and value and worth because God loved you and he created you. But something has been broken because of our sin nature and our fallen world. And so we're all searching and scanning. But Jesus came that you might have life and be forgiven and be changed and be reconciled and be filled. And we get the opportunity to share that. There's a generation that needs to see the glory of Jesus. And I desperately have to do these last two points very quickly because I got very excited on that point. Here's number two. There's a new generation that needs to see the beauty of the church. That needs to see the beauty of the church. I gave up on the church. Grew up in the church, gave up on the church. And you see the beauty of the church and what Paul is underneath the surface of Ephesians 2.22. And what Paul is doing here is he's addressing division between Jews and Gentiles. We know that there was a, a long, in the first century, this deeply entrenched hatred and prejudice between Jews and Gentiles. Jews saw Gentiles as unclean, as, as like filthy dogs, unfit to have any dignity or value, certainly to be included in the covenant community of God. And Gentiles, so many Gentile nations were conquerors and abused and oppressed and enslaved the Jews over and over and over again throughout Jewish history. There's deep hatred and resentment between these two groups. And so Paul in Acts 19, he moves to Ephesus. He begins spreading the gospel, teaching about Jesus, discipling people. And what begins to happen? There are Jews and Gentiles that are converted. They are born again. They become followers of Jesus. And then Paul has the audacity to then begin to gather them into the church together. And people who have grown up their whole lives seeing the other group a certain kind of way, hearing the other group talked about a certain kind of way, interacting with the other group in a certain way, now they are in community together, and they're expected to treat one another as family together. And so Paul speaks into that tension, and starting in verse 20, he uses a construction metaphor to describe God's work in building this community. And he says the foundation of that community, the church, is the apostles and prophets. You see that up in verse 20. In other words, God used the apostles and prophets to establish the foundational doctrines that make up 
the New Testament scriptures. So biblical truth is the foundation of the church. But the Bible is ultimately about what God is doing through Jesus, the Messiah. And that's why Paul uses this image of Jesus as the cornerstone. Because in the ancient world, there's no steel frame construction, uh, right? So mo most buildings, they're built by just stacking stones one on top of the other. And the cornerstone was so important because it was the reference point for all the other stones in the building. It was at the corner. So every other stone in the building was lined up according to the angle of that cornerstone. In a very real sense, the entire building was shaped by the cornerstone. And the same is true for the church. Amen. That's why Paul says in verse 22, in him, in Christ, you are also being built together. You're being built together. Like if you're not locked in to a local church community, you are forfeiting some of the experience that God has for you because there is, there is a, a certain distance you can't go. There's a certain depth you can't grow, right? I didn't mean to rhyme, but I do have a hip-hop background, right? Um, but so there's just some stuff you're just not going to be able to experience in isolation. God will meet you where you are, by yourself, in your room, watching online, you and Jesus. He is gracious like that. But he's designed our spiritual growth and the vibrancy of abundant life to be maximized in the community of God's people. And what was happening in the first century church and what you see happen as the gospel moves into different communities and different cultures all over the world is that Jesus, by his spirit, begins bringing people together who otherwise would never come together. They would never come together. One Yale historian from, uh, uh, put it this way. He's writing about the reasons Christianity spread so rapidly throughout the Roman Empire. And he says one of the reasons is because of what he calls Christianity's absolute inclusiveness. Now, not inclusiveness like a bunch of progressives talk about today. Inclusiveness being Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That sounds very exclusive, but it's radically inclusive because what the gospel is saying is it doesn't matter what culture you're from. It doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, you're slave, you're free. It does, none of that matters. Everybody has to come in the same way. Everybody has equal access the same way. And so listen to what this historian said. He said, more than any other of its competitor religions, Christianity attracted all races and classes. The pagan deities, for example, were often tied and confined to certain regions and nations. And even in the days of its most active proselytizing activities, Judaism never overcame its racial boundaries because converts had to become culturally Jewish. They had to assimilate kind of into Jewish practices. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew, Gentile, African, and barbarian. That was the term used in the Roman world to describe foreigners. The philosophers of Greece and Rome, on the other hand, appealed to the educated only and could never win the masses. It was one of the charges against Christianity that it drew the lowly and uneducated multitude, that its essential teaching was so simple that anybody could understand. Yet Christianity also developed a philosophy that converted some of the greatest minds in this society. And Christianity, too, was 
for both sexes and women were active in its work, while two of its main competitor religions were almost exclusively for men. There was no other religion that took in all groups and all strata of society. And here's the key. He says, the one tenable explanation of Christianity's inclusiveness was probably its teaching of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And here's why he says, for if Jesus was not merely a teacher showing the way of salvation, but the son of God who accomplished salvation, then members of both sexes and all races, the learned and the unlearned, the high and the low, the able and the non-able, might all be able to share in the salvation made possible in Christ. What he's saying is the gospel revolutionized the known world. And this was the beauty of the church. That the cornerstone of the church was not your ethnic group. It was not your race. It was not you as a man, as a privileged member of in a patriarchal society. It was not your physical or intellectual ability. No, the cornerstone of the church was Jesus. It was Jesus. And not only was Jesus the cornerstone, but listen, as people come into the church through Jesus, all these different kinds of people, then God begins to put those people to work. Now, here's what we have a tendency to do. What we have a tendency to do is rather than our differences displaying the beauty of the church and the glory of Jesus, we can go to one of two extremes. We either trivialize our differences and there's whole streams of Christianity that just sweep our differences under the rug of unity. When what that really does is it diminishes the image of Godness in people as they express their God-given differences, their cultural expressions, their, 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 their gender expression, their, like, the, all, all these different ways that God has made us as male and female and, and the different cultural and ethnic backgrounds that we come from and the different geographical reasons that we come from and the, the accents, you know, that we bring to the table and the different perspectives that we have and the different abilities that we may have. We can trivialize those differences in the name of unity and we diminish the image of God and we rob the church of the beauty of those differences or we don't trivialize them. What is happening in our culture, and we see it so clearly over the last couple of years, is that we can begin to weaponize our differences. We can make our differences so essential and we can begin to now build our identity on those differences in ways that prop up our own self-righteousness and cause us to look down on other people who are different from us. The gospel says no to either of those. No, the gospel invites us to actually contribute our differences to this tapestry of the body of Christ. That we bring the fullness of who we are, redeemed by Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, to contribute to the beauty of the church. I was talking to a pastor this weekend, a Korean-American pastor, and 
He's pastoring this church and he was telling me how he's so encouraged because God has just been continuing to diversify their church. They, he said, we, we, we believe that God does not want us to just be a, a kind of second generation Asian American church. And there's nothing wrong with that. Their particular vision is that they would become a multi-ethnic church. So he's telling me, it's been so encouraging. There's these Indian brothers and sisters that have been coming to our church. And, and there's these African brothers and sisters who have been coming. And he, he told me about these two ladies and I don't remember what African country they were from, but he said, hey, these two uh, African ladies, when they first started coming to our church, he said they would always wear hats. I'm not talking about, like, baseball hats, y'all. I'm talking, like, black church tradition, like, first lady of the United States inauguration level, like, hat. Like, okay, Kentucky Derby type, you know what I'm saying, like, hats. That's what they wore to church because in that cultural expression, it, there was a theology behind it, right? That, that it was giving physical expression to a, a theological reality that when I come to worship, I'm bringing my best to God. But he said he noticed after a while, the ladies stopped wearing their hats. And as he began to probe and ask some questions about it, he began to find out that they came in and they just kind of felt uncomfortable. And they looked around and they were like, oh, they don't do that here. So they started leaving their hats at home. They started leaving their cultural expression at home. So you know what he did? He said, Mike, I got the leaders together. And we picked one Sunday in the year and we declared it Hat Sunday. <laughs> he said, so all the ladies in the church, he's like, get your little dollar bills together. Y'all go out and find a hat. And so ladies all over the church are going out and they're finding like hats or whatever. And, and all the ladies show up on that Sunday wearing their finest, like wearing their hats. And listen, this wasn't a way of like becoming legalistic and saying, oh, we all got to wear hats now. No, no, no. This was their way of saying to those two ladies, our goal is not to make you like us. No, Jesus is the cornerstone. Our goal is that all of us will become more like Jesus. And so that's going to look a little bit different. So your Christ-likeness might have a little extra swag on it than mine. Our expression might look a bit different. Our perspectives might be different. But what we do is we bring those differences into this sacred, supernatural community and we contribute those differences in a way that puts the beauty of God's manifold wisdom and grace and creativity on display. And it's not just in things like a hat. That's important. It's a cultural expression. But it even gets down to things like our spiritual gifts. It gets down to things like, like our convictions. And there are pockets of the church that can learn from other pockets of the church about how to understand God's work in, for example, injustice. God's work in areas of doctrine and theology and how that shapes the life of a church is a study we call ecclesiology. And how to embrace silence and solitude in a more contemplative way in, in a church that is often so intoxicated by noise. We bring our differences into the church in a way that Ephesians 4 says, as each part does its work, we all grow up 
into Christ. We mature to become more and more and more like Jesus. Not by trivializing our differences or weaponizing our differences, but by offering those differences in subordination to Jesus, filled with the Spirit and the authority of God's Word. We offer those differences in community with humility. And and so we say, listen, now I can learn from you and I can be shaped by you. And I can become more like Jesus, like these stones that have been prepared and fitted together. I can be chiseled and sanctified and become more like Jesus because now I'm interacting with you and I'm humbling myself to learn and be shaped by you. This is the beauty of the church. And there's a generation that's longing to see that reality to see that on display because so many in the emerging generation have just seen the church be a reflection of the culture. Whatever the dominant culture is, see the church just be a reflection of the the kind of hostility, the kind of stubborn self-righteousness, the cancel culture that has no mercy and no grace. But there's a generation, a new generation that needs to see the beauty of the church as God designed it to be. And listen, God has called you, if you are in Christ, listen, God has called you to to be a contributor to that beauty. And listen, all of us got, you know, Thanksgiving, all of we got, we all got that family member. <laughs> the potluck list, it went out on WhatsApp like a month ago. We know Thanksgiving is the fourth Thursday of every November. It comes around every single year, right? They don't bring nothing. <laughs> Except their appetite. Everybody enjoys the meal. And then some people are like, oh, I'll help with the dishes. Oh, I'll get the trash. Oh, you want me to put the folding chairs up? Nope. They're not going to do anything. You have that family member. Here's my point. Don't be that family member. (laughs) Don't be that family member in in the family of God. Because you are missing out on something and... When you are just just a consumer and you just treat the church like it just delivers spiritual goods and services like every other commodity you consume, you not only miss out yourself, but then you rob us of the opportunity to be made more like Jesus because you won't contribute the uniqueness of who God has made you to be. With your spiritual gifts and your perspective and your cultural heritage and and your educational and professional background and all the ways that God has made you to be, are you perfect? Absolutely not. But God is the one who fits the stones together. And if you are in Christ, then he's called you to be an active contributor to the beauty of the church. Let me land on this. There's a new generation that needs to see the power of the Holy Spirit. Man, I wish I had. 27 more minutes on this one. Somebody said, go ahead. I don't know if that's representative. I don't know if that's representative. But I'm not going to do it. They're not going to do it. I almost sway no September 24th, folks. 
Look at verse 22. Just, and just let this sit. Let, the, let the, the grandeur of this description sit on your heart. Paul says, in him, in Christ, you also are being built together into what? Into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Y'all, there's so much I can say there. Y'all know the temple, the tabernacle was such a huge part of old covenant, of the old covenant people of God. It was where the, the presence of God, there's, there's two words here in the Greek for for the temple, it, it's, and this is not the word that's used for the general temple precincts. This is the word that's used for the Holy of Holies, the place where the, where the Shekinah glory of God was manifested, where the glory of God would, would rest. This was the place, this was the sign that God was not just reigning in heaven, but he's reigning on earth. And that by his mercy and by his grace, he has chosen to dwell and manifest, to make himself known and revealed in this physical building. Well, now in Jesus, the whole situation is different because God says, no, 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 it will not be a building. No, it will be a people. That what I'm building is a community of people who individually have been united with Christ and have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And together I will make them a place where I dwell and where I manifest my presence. And how will I do it? I will do it by the, not by might nor by human power and ingenuity, but I will do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's what that means. And then I got I to gotta close. Here's what this means. Y'all, if all we're going to do... In this next season of McLean Bible Church, is just settle for religious activity and organizational dynamics, that's not something any of us should want to give our life to. Like if all we're going to do is just take some best practices from organizational growth strategies and convert it to church growth strategies... If all we're going to do is try to just build bigger buildings and, and, and just make bigger churches and, and have bigger budgets and have more cultural influence, if that's all we're going to do, it's not something that's worth us giving our, ourselves to. It's, a, it's me fly fishing. <laughs> there is no hope in that. But the church... The church is not just some human organization. It's not just some human event. Do you realize when we gather together that we are meeting? This is not a concert with a motivational speech and a little snack at the end. Like this is a, a meeting with the living God. That, that we, we gather and we stand and we sing consciously aware. It's why we get here. It's hard sometimes, y'all. We got kids. We got responsibilities. We tired. The Colorado game was so late last night. Right? I understand. But we make our way here because we are meeting with the living God together. And so we come with this sense of expectation. And what would happen if God was in the room? Is it possible that people could be delivered? 
Is it possible that people could be healed? Is it possible that people could be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ? Is it possible that as I'm rehearsing or hearing the congregation of God's people rehearse these profound truths about God in our songs, that my faith could be strengthened, supernaturally strengthened, that my struggle of a week could not go away, but all of a sudden could be eclipsed by the glory of God as I find myself just struck by and overwhelmed by his presence. Come on, y'all. When we gather, we we expect to be meeting with the living God. And then when we go into the world, y'all, we go into the world as those who are called to fill spaces with God's presence. We are the church that scatters throughout the DMV area in neighborhoods and schools and all kinds of places. And we go as carriers of the... Do you know that when you show up to work, the presence of God is there because you're there? Because you're there. This is not just some natural human organization or event. This is a supernatural community that God is building. And he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And this is why I'm excited, y'all, because there is a generation that needs to see the glory of Jesus and the beauty of the church and the power of the Holy Spirit. They're tired of washed out religion and hypocrisy and all the things that distract us away from what the Bible says we actually are. And we have an opportunity to show them the reality of what God has designed us to be. The question then is, are we going to show them? Are we going to show them? I say let's show them. Like, let's show them. In church groups and ministries and, and as teachers and engineers and those in the military and moms and dads and students and whatever, I say together we might be like real out of place trying to catch fish. But we have this supernatural mandate and this supernatural power to participate in the mission of God and see a new generation found and redeemed by him. Y'all, I hope you won't sit on the sidelines. And if you're here and you're, or you're watching and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, please, please know God wants to give you the life that you're looking for. You don't even realize you've been looking for it. And he will take it and he will redefine it. Oh, yeah. And you will spend the rest of your eternal life yes. realizing how good and merciful and glorious God is. Yes. That's our hope for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for what you've revealed to us about who we are and, and what we can become in Christ. Father, I pray, I know so many of us pray with sincere, desperate hearts. Would you do it again in a new generation? Would you do it again in a new generation, God? And would you use us? Would you use us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.